All right, so some quick announcements before we get into it. First, we're finally releasing our Philosophy of Christopher Nolan Part 3 video on YouTube this Saturday, February 17th, and we're gonna be doing an AMA for the first hour it's posted. So please come hang out with us, ask us questions at 10 a.m. Pacific time. And for those of you who are fans of our uh, problematic communist friend Austin, he is the man who uh, did all the research for this. It was actually his thesis that uh, became this trilogy. So uh, come support Austin. Also, if you like what we do, consider supporting us on Patreon, where you'll gain access to patron-exclusive movie reviews, behind-the-scenes look at our process, and other cool goodies. And if you want to go beyond what we cover in our videos and podcasts, soon patrons will have access to all the research that goes into our content. We'll provide y'all with scripts, the outlines, and the research documents that inform our videos. This will allow you guys to dig deeper yourself. So head over to patreon.com slash wisecrack to check it out. Your support helps us keep the lights on, so we'd be extremely grateful if you chose to join us on Patreon. And finally, thank you so much to those of you who already responded to the audience survey in the description. Uh, really appreciate you guys taking the time to do that. We still need a few more responses so that our sponsors can know what you guys like so if you have the time really appreciate it if you guys take the survey link below it'll take less than a minute of your time but it helps us out tremendously and now on to the show Hey everyone, welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared, I'm joined here by the Show Me the Meaning guys. We got Ryan. What up, film fans? And Austin. Hey, hey. And we actually have a special guest today from Curiosity.com, the host of the Curiosity Podcast, Cody Goff. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. For those of you who don't know what Curiosity is, it is much like Wisecrack. It's a place for curious people to learn about all sorts of different stuff from science to mathematics to psychology to all sorts, pretty much everything you can think of. And Cody's podcast is great. And he actually did a really awesome podcast on gene editing that is perfect for today's discussion on Gattaca, the 1997 movie written and directed by Andrew Nichols, starring Ethan Hawke, Jude Law, and Uma Thurman. So as always, let's go ahead and get some first reactions. Uh, Cody, usually we start about what was it like the first time that you watched this movie, and what is it like now revisiting it for this podcast? So let's start with Austin this time. So shock, horror, this is the first time I've ever seen Gattaca. Oh, <sighs> Yeah, that was the All response right. I was expecting when I said that. So I'm glad you guys did that without any sort of rehearsal. So thank you. For, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a button that I pushed. Um, yeah, I'd never seen it before. I've always wanted to see it. I've seen screenshots of it. I've heard about it. I've read about it, but I've never seen it before. So I decided to get a little high and watch this awesome uh, 15 minutes into the future sci-fi film. And it was fucking awesome. <laughs> Um, first of all, I just have to say at like a surface level enjoyment, I love the score for this movie. Yeah. yeah. Like it hit me in the feels. I got pretty emotional. I got a little teary eyed multiple times, especially when he's swimming at the end with his brother. And then Oof. of course you knew that the score was going to come back at the very end when he's in the, the ship going up to Titan. So I just thought that was fantastic. I think the aesthetic vibe of this film was was really lovely. And I think one of the things I, I marveled most about this film um, from from a sort of cinematic perspective is that you can't make this kind of movie in 2018. Uh, an original, big sci-fi sort of epic tale that isn't based on any pre-existent IP with a built-in audience. That sort of thing doesn't get funding anymore. And so it was really lovely to see that this film was so ambitious and was executed so well. And then, of course, we'll get into the philosophical themes and things like that, but it's really fucking interesting, and I loved it. The only gripe is I just don't buy Ethan Hawke as, like, a smooth charmer. So when he tries that every once in a while, I'm like, ah, I kind of just prefer him as a little bit more bumbly and nerdy. But other than that, loved it. Well, in what movies... Is he bumbly and nerdy that that you've typecast? Yeah, him like as? before sunrise. Yeah, the, the, the Linklater films for sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's that's more my vibe for for him. He kind of when he tries to do like the smooth, like when he did that thing where where Uma Thurman is like, you know, she plucks her hair and she's like, you know, if you change your mind, and he's like, oops, and he does that like little crooked smile, the like Tom Cruise cheesy <laughs> smile. It just hey, I can't. It works on me. I like it just, him. Ethan Hawke. It just doesn't quite work for me, but that's okay. Oh, I think he's such a charming, good-looking dude. But anyway, let's go with the new kid on the block. Cody, how do you feel about this movie? Yeah, the first time I saw it was freshman year of college for 
for a college course. I like we were talking about what movie to, that I would talk about on this podcast, and somebody said something like, "Oh, it's one of those movies everybody watches in college." And I'm just kind of sheepishly like, "Yeah, that's that's when I saw it." But the <laughs> first time I saw it, I mean, I loved it. It was in a science fiction and film and literature course, and and we analyzed a lot of of different stuff like Blade Runner and this movie, and and it's one of those movies that I wish I could rewatch for the first time because I went a really long time without watching it. Then I watched it again with my wife last year. And then I watched it again this week. And it, it you start to see that the, I kind of start to feel at least that the concept of the movie and the kind of the overall message is really, really great and brilliant and awesome. But the execution isn't necessarily super awesome. It's like the weirdest thing. So, like, for the last 10 years, I've been able to vividly remember all of the sets, right? Because, first of all, there's, like, two. And, second of all, they're really striking visuals. And that's really cool that they they just stick there. They're really, really vivid. But then, at the same time, as I'm looking at it, just when I watched it earlier this week, I'm like, why is everything so yellow? Does it, does it need to be so yellow? And it's not consistently yellow. It seems kind of haphazardly yellow. It's not like yellow is just in, in certain parts that I could identify at least on this viewing. So I don't know. It's uh, I love the movie and it's really great, but uh, overall it has a couple problems, but yeah, just a, it's just a good solid sci-fi film. Absolutely. All right, Ryan, what do you think? Yeah. Similarly, um, I saw it for the first time in high school um, for, I forget what, what kind of class it was for, but, uh, but then, and I have very similar thoughts as Cody, um, because basically I uh, um, I think that this movie has amazing ideas, obviously, and it's kind of way more about the ideas than the entertainment value of the movie, I guess you'd say, because, yeah, after watching, this is the second time I'd seen it, I'd only seen it that one other time, and kind of as you're watching, it's kind of boring a little bit sometimes, I feel like, but then, you know, after the movie, you know, I've definitely thought about it a lot in the last 10 years, just like just what it's about. And yeah, like Austin said, 15 minutes into the future here, we're going to be doing this shit probably, (laughs) or, you know, there's going to be a conversation about it at least. So, uh, yeah, I think that it's an amazing script and a pretty good movie. Yeah. So I saw this movie for the first time about four years ago, and I, I guess I'm kind of in a similar camp as Cody in that I like this movie a lot, and I think that it has a place in our culture because of the idea that it explores. It's one of those things where if anyone ever talks about eugenics or gene editing or genetic determinism, you know, people just say like, oh, Gattaca. Because I think more than a cinematic experience, it really is almost a morality tale in a sense or just it's a, it's an idea film it's a all about exploring ex, yeah a cautionary tale it's all about exploring this idea but uh more to cody's point i similarly ever since doing the old boy podcast i've been so hooked on like okay you know i'm usually for our youtube videos we talk about kind of the philosophy the ideology behind the movie or the things that it expresses but i've always been kind of more like now nah, i want to kind of look more at the form of the film and i found myself pretty more or less empty-handed on this one in terms of anything really interesting going on other than in the script and to Cody's point yeah I was looking at the lighting there's a lot of yellow but there's also a lot of green and I kept on asking myself why or or is it is there some deliberate distinction between when the light is yellow and when the light is green and I couldn't come up with anything maybe you guys could but overall I really like this movie I think it's extremely thought-provoking and I think the reason why it ages so well and the reason why people still talk about it is that it's a very precise, interesting take on an idea and a kind of a very scary look into our not-too-distant future. So before we go into the recap, I want to tell you guys that the next movie we'll be covering on this podcast is The Incredibles, the 2004 Pixar movie directed by Brad Bird. So check the link in the description of this podcast, and we'll let you know uh, how you can go about seeing the movie, and hopefully you'll watch it along with us in preparation for next week's podcast. So let's go into the recap. In the not-too-distant future, technology enables parents to genetically customize their children before birth, enabling them to avoid any negative qualities and optimize positive ones. Our protagonist is Vincent Freeman, who, unlike his younger brother Anton, was conceived without genetic doctoring, labeling him as a faith birth. This places Vincent among a societal underclass of invalids relegated to menial jobs, while the genetically enhanced valids are immediately accepted into higher positions. 
But that doesn't extinguish Vincent's ambitions of becoming an astronaut. So after an unexpected victory over his much stronger brother in a game of chicken in the ocean, Vincent leaves home and devises an elaborate plan to assume the identity of a valid human named Jerome Morrow, who is now wheelchair-bound. Utilizing samples of Jerome's skin, hair, and blood, Vincent gets a job at Gattaca and is days away from making it to space and living his dream. When the mission director is mysteriously murdered, the investigators discover one of Vincent's hairs, and he becomes the prime suspect, and the cops quickly move to sniff out the invalid in their ranks. Vincent starts dating a fellow Gattaca employee named Irene, who, despite being a valid, is unable to go to space due to a heart condition. Vincent is able to use his wits to duck the fuzz as they try to find the invalid among the workforce. One of the lead detectives starts to suspect something suspicious about Jerome Morrow, a.k.a. Vincent, so along with Irene, he visits his home to see the real Jerome there covering for Vincent. Vincent confesses to Irene that he is a faith birth and tells her that she shouldn't feel limited by her heart condition. The lead detective discovers an overlooked piece of evidence and that it was Director Joseph who killed the mission director because he threatened to delay the impending space mission for years. Turns out the cop that visited Jerome is Vincent's brother, who threatens to turn Vincent in. They settle their dispute by revisiting their game of chicken in the tumultuous ocean and again, lacking Vincent's determination, Anton almost drowns. Vincent makes good with Irene, Jerome kills himself, and with the help of a sympathetic doctor, Vincent boards the spacecraft and takes off to space. He has fulfilled his dream. End of movie. So let's get started talking about what I think is one of the big, I think what is the central question of this movie is what does it mean to be a human? And I know that we could say that about a lot of movies, but I think this movie's discussion about genetic determinism begs the question, can something as complex as a human ever be completely quantified and uh, i'm just going to go over some initial thoughts i think that the movie's saying before i open it up to you guys so we're meant to believe at least the scientific community as portrayed in the film is meant to tell us that genetics can provide incontrovertible evidence as to one's capabilities that one can truly be determined completely by their genetics but the movie is constantly undercutting this so, for example, Vincent is told he has a 99% chance of heart disease, but he's still kicking. Jude Law's character is an engineered valid, and he's supposed to be a complete thoroughbred. People are always uh, saying that he's got like a 93% uh, greatness of genes or something, and people are fawning over his genetic code, calling him a great catch. Yet, he's an alcoholic, threw himself in front of a car, and ultimately commits suicide, Arguably, I guess we could talk about this later, uh, because he became he came second in swimming and he was not, in fact, the best. And then there's uh, Gore Vidal's character, uh, director Joseph. He boasts that a genetic test can prove that there isn't a violent bone in his body. Yet he turns out to be the one who murdered the mission director. And then my favorite part of the movie. So we have the pianist with 12 fingers. He's definitely an invalid. <laughs> Yet he's able to perform music exceptionally. In fact, a piece of music that can only be played by him. And I think this is a really clever callback to at the beginning of the movie when they say, ten fingers, ten toes. That's all that used to matter, but not now. Hmm. So I guess to me, the final message of the film is that even the engineered valids aren't above imperfection. As the doctor mentions, like at the end, the doctor says that his son wasn't what he was cracked up to be. So he sees Vincent as a source of inspiration that just as... You know, uh, Vincent was able to transcend whatever limits he's facing. Even valids have to face that same that they have to or should be able to tap into the same the will or determination in a sense, and that it can't just be that they rely on genetics. The so force it's like, of will, right? Yeah, it's like it's a it's a affirmation of determination and will right. in a movie. So uh, yeah, I want to op open up to you guys. What do you guys think about that, or some of the other interesting things about the movie? Well, with the six fingers thing, it makes me think about fate, which, you know, forever ago, the Greeks were like, yeah, the gods made this thing and maybe there's fate, maybe there isn't. And that's been debated over the years. But this kind of puts fate in the parents' hands, right? Like if I genetically design my kid to have six fingers, then I as a parent am basically saying to my kid, hey, you're going to play piano or do something that utilizes these six fingers, whether or not that person wants to do it or not. And I thought that that was dealt with interestingly. This is the same screenwriter also that wrote The Truman Show, which is 
phenomenal movie that also oh, deals yeah. with that kind of thing. Like who determines fate and this this is putting it in human hands, which I don't know, I thought was kind of an interesting way to put at it. I, I saw the you know, the doctors and the parental units in this film as almost kind of God, basically. Um, the characters that you see not really affected by anything, not super dramatic, the ones that are kind of uh, a little more casual about everything are the doctors. They're the ones just kind of joking around and laughing and making dick jokes and uh, and being relatively unaffected because all the power is there, right? All the power is there is the only reason that the hero is able to triumph in the end is because the doctor deems it so. He says, you know, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to ignore the fact that you've been faking this and kind of let you go on your merry way. So it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's just the whole humans being God thing and playing God with genes. And that just ends up permeating the whole society. Yeah, there's something kind of really nice, too, about humans transcending the supposed essentialized and naturalized limits that 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 normal quote unquote normal life is supposed to echo and uh i think i think that this film really sets up the theme quite explicitly by using that quote by willard galen at the beginning and i can't remember the exact quote but it's something along the lines of you know human beings are are going to tamper with mother nature but mother actually wants it something along yeah, those lines I not only think that we will tamper with Mother Nature, I think Mother wants us to. Right. And so Willard Galen is a um, he's a psychoanalyst and psychologist, and he has written a lot on what it means to be human. And uh, he, he wrote um, a really important essay that's basically I think it's I think it's called What is so special about being human? And in it, he actually kind of argues against a sort of like Kantian notion of human as being autonomous or having like a will that is what makes it separate or even the the sort of reductionist kind of idea that uh, a human means that you are just, a, you know, a, a particular genomic structure. For him, he actually says that there are unique characteristics that separate humans and he talks about like the imagination, the capacity for romantic love and things of that nature. And so then what his point is, is if we can if we can focus on enhancing those unique characteristics that he identifies as being particularly human, you can modify them to the hilt and that's okay. So that's kind of what he's talking about with the idea that the mother of mother nature is okay with us tampering with our natural um, or instinctual or ingrained or intrinsic uh, capacities. So it isn't the, the simple idea of just being reducible to biology or a genomic structure or something like that. But rather he has these other, maybe even almost transcendent or metaphysical characteristics that he thinks that you can enhance those and you can enhance those endlessly and that will kind of allow us to transcend the limitations that are often imposed on us um, under the rubric of quote-unquote human nature. And so I think that is really interesting and I think I don't know. I always like to imagine screenwriters like, dude, I'm going to be so profound and I'm going to put this quote at the beginning because I've been reading a lot of this guy. And, you know, that's that's kind of like the designing principle for the whole thing. So I think that I was watching the film through the rubric or through the lens, if you will, of Galen through the entire thing. So we were born with default settings and it's OK to uh, amp them up a little bit. A hundred percent. Yeah, I think that's exactly what Galen would say. But those default settings aren't the default settings that are simply on display in the film, which are reducible to like genes, right? And that everything is in your DNA and and then you're fated based on that. But rather it's it's something else. It's yeah, you might have those those uh biological proclivities, but that there's a way to transcend them and then then in those in those characteristics or in those categories, you can expand on them. And that's why I think the imagination is something that's so important because you have Ethan Hawke who is superseding, if you will, the physical or biological limitations that are supposedly in his body as he, you know, is, is fulfilling his dream. And so he's he's able to uh, move beyond, if you will, the limited characteristics that are imposed upon him by his human nature. So I'm a, I'm a little bit I'm not quite following Austin. So you're saying that Galen would say that instead of optimizing, uh, you know, biological things 
perhaps like our cognitive abilities, et cetera, he would suggest that, you know, some of the things that we see Ethan that drives Ethan Hawke to succeed, like faith, imagination, dreams, determination, romantic that love. Those are the things we should optimize. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's really ultimately what Galen would advocate. Not 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 I don't think the Galen quote is meant to map on to what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, eugenics. I don't think that's that's the point. It's not m- meant to map onto that element of the story. I think it's meant to map on more to the transcending of it in the Ethan Hawke sense, where it's not just simply reducible to uh, like one category of determining what it means to be human, but that there are all these other categories that need to be considered as well, and they will transcend, and that's how you optimize the human. I think that's what the Galen quote is really intimating. But But how is that messing with Mother Nature? Because isn't it that... Ethan Hawke's character is just tapping into Mother Nature. And but then than, kind of enha- it's not messing with, but as Ryan just said, sort of enhancing or emboldening or fleshing out those areas that have been pushed aside because the 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 other elements aren't as um, like potentiality for artistic expression in music or romantic love mm. or the imagination. Those things don't go into determining whether one is a valid versus an invalid. It's just simply about the genome sequence, right? And so um, I think the Galen quote, because he's a psychoanalyst, I don't think he's going to be as reductive as the the, the culture in Gattaca is that is just simply looking at things based on biology. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. No, I think that's really interesting. For me, I uh, I kind of was reminded that you know I, uh, when I watched this in high school, it was all under the context because it was a Catholic school. You know, like is this okay? What they're right. doing? It was like, right, is, right. are we going against God's will? This is going to be you know uh, you're you're made in His image, and is it okay to fuck with His design? Basically, was the gist of of the conversation. Well, I think that there's something even if you take God out of the equation, I think that perhaps at least one of the ways that I read this is that there's a kind of a distinction between the human and humanity. And although, you know, you may be able to reduce a human to whatever, like biological chemicals and neurons firing and all that stuff. But I do think the idea of humanity as such, there is an element of chance, uncertainty and chaos that is essential to the human experience. And I think that that's kind of what is being compromised by this society in which not only are people being genetically optimized, but people are being told that there's no point in faith. There's no point in having dreams. There's no point in, you know, exerting your will beyond what you think your capabilities are because everything is determined. Well, it's like the society has taken the nature versus nurture debate debate to it's like crazy extreme. And they right. just all said, oh, yeah, no, it's all it's all nature. Nurture doesn't matter at all and uh you know basically you're born with a 99 percent certainty that all this stuff is going to happen to you so why try that i mean it's kind of like what happens to society when that is the foundation that you're born into and how you can overcome that basically right with with a testament of willpower yeah we need to as a society when once things become very determined and everything becomes very calculatable like 15 minutes into the future, like Austin like said. Like four I think minutes into the future. Four minutes into the future. <laughs> we need to still maintain a, a faith in things like the will, the imagination, in pursuing dreams, in uh, aspiring to achieve things outside of that can be that, – that, that which can be calculated. Yeah. There's still stuff out there. There's still stuff out there, bro. Yeah, and so I mean think- and this, is, this is one of the pitfalls that you find in – sort of 21st century pop scientific appropriations that people want to go to just simple biological reductionism, you know? Um, you get this with the the sort of new atheism crowd and the influence that that, that sort of movement and that, let's say, ethos or, or worldview has has had on on popular culture at large, that people do tend to think of things as, oh, we can just reduce the human to you know, uh, a sequence, uh, a DNA sequence or something like that, right? Or you especially get this with the gender debates today. Like, are there just simply biologically two sexes or two genders? And uh, you can determine that based on XX versus XY. And so there is a, there's an inclination that, that the human is, at least today, and I think this is the kind of like 
more popular inclination that we are just simply like chemical processes or biological processes. And so it's interesting to be able to explore ideas that are beyond that and actually ask the question, what is it to be human? Because maybe the category of human itself is a construct that itself is is always moving and changing. The human meant something different a thousand years ago. It meant something different with Descartes. It meant something different with Kant. It meant something different uh, to post-structuralists. You know, it means something different to Foucault, who basically says there is no such thing as man. You know, and that maybe the idea of the human is something that is always to come, and that human is is a concept, a fabricated image that we're always striving towards. So, what does it mean to be human, rather than thinking that there is some sort of pure idea of humanity as such that we then have to kind of subsume ourselves under to map onto so that we can live our authentic humanism. Maybe it's something else. Maybe there is uh, an unbounded perception or, or, or possibility of what humanisms could become. And so that's something else that I think is really interesting to kind of battle with or, or, or work through. So I want to ask, since we're talking um, much more in the philosophical domain, I want to ask Cody, who has looked at this at this issue through a scientific lens, and I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on this. Yeah, I talked to Dr. Sam Sternberg, who runs a CRISPR gene editing lab, oh, research lab yeah. at Columbia University, and he actually uses he uses Gattaca as a in his talks. He he literally plays the clip from the beginning where the doctor is talking about how you know remember this is still you it's just the mm. best you mm. and and when he's selecting the genes and everything and he he actually utilizes this and this is stuff that we're doing i, I know we we've said the not too distant the not too distant future a couple times maybe 15 years maybe 5 years but no this is now this is definitely happening with in vitro fertilizations i mean john legend and his wife picked the gender of their baby a couple of years ago because they had to use in vitro fertilization and then at that point had the option to select a gender, male or female. So this is stuff that's wow. happening. And it's interesting because there was also a deleted scene. I'm not sure if you've watched those, uh, but I watched back in the day. And the doctor in an extended conversation with Vincent's parents, he says, you know, if you want to have your child be musically have a high musical aptitude that'll be an extra five thousand dollars or that'll be an extra ten thousand dollars and it becomes oh, wow. it becomes a uh it becomes a financial thing and when when i was talking to dr sternberg I, I asked you know to the point earlier about religion and if you watch this in in a religious high school what is okay to tamper with and what is okay to not tamper with i think the debate actually and the relevance socially has moved more from is it ethical to edit genes to what are the broader implications of editing genes and if it costs 10 or twenty thousand dollars to edit your genome so that you have a lower risk of diabetes or a lower risk of heart disease or whatever it is my family's already got a bunch of money then suddenly the gap the not only will the income gap become greater but also now all the people with money are way healthier which means that they have oh, no incentive God. to make healthcare cheap and then the poor people are the ones that are the sick ones that have to pay more and it just becomes a snowball effect and ends up really getting everything bigger and in an international economy the same is true if china says it's okay to edit and make superhumans and the u.s doesn't well then what country has superhumans 30 years from now and what country doesn't <laughs> so that's not really great and when i was watching gattaca I, I think it's kind of funny that the doctor at the start just kind of throws away the line about about the race of the child and the the complexion he says something along the lines of ah fair skin i see and just kind of chuckles like it's a throwaway like it's not a big deal and I think this deals socially, this film deals socially with what happens when you're not discriminating on someone's skin or gender, but you're discriminating on their very core of what their body is capable of. And and that, I think, is pretty messed up. So what you're saying is we need to start a superhuman arms race with China. <laughs> I think he's saying it just might be inevitable. <laughs> so, Cody, real quick, just if you can, can you give like a two minute overview of this CRISPR project that this doctor is working on? Like what exactly are they doing? What are they researching? Where's their funding? Stuff like that. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. And I, I don't have all the details of that, but as, as much as I um, kind of went into with the interview, for background, CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Palindromic coming from the GATC 
letters. Oh. Basically, what they're doing is is they're taking parts of DNA. They're which is also where Gattaca little... gets its name from, by the way. So, which is yeah, yeah, the the the, the sequence obviously in the in the DNA strand. But okay, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh. So the GATC. Basically, they're able to take these microscopic little scissors and cut out a part of a DNA strand if it's the DNA sequence that causes a certain genetic disorder. If they're able to identify that certain genetic disorders, maybe it's just one sequence you can cut. Others are really complicated and involve lots of different sequences, so they're not there yet. But most CRISPR research focuses on particular diseases, identifying what they are and you can basically cut and paste dna into dna sequences now and there are ways to do this in human adults who maybe have an eye issue or, or some other disease and they can cut it out of uh, an adult being then there's also embryonic crispr applications with in which they fix an embryo's messed up cells and so when those cells divide and grow and grow into a fully grown human being, then that disease is erased. So that's what CRISPR is. CRISPR research is going on all around the world. Lots of other countries are working on this. China, as I mentioned, is definitely doing it and different places in Europe. So this is this is a global thing. And the lab he's opening at Columbia is just, again, to do research to find more diseases that they can fix. But they're also finding genes that could hypothetically, let's say, decrease the chance of balding when you're older or decrease the chance of getting gray hair when you're older or make you taller and things like that that become less about fixing a problem and more about augmentation, which is where a lot of these uh, a lot of the debates come in in terms of the ethics. So and, and the funding is all over the place. Like I could make myself a, a like I I want to raise a really violent super soldier kid and you know make him <laughs> ten feet tall and and whatever you know that's kind of I I specifically like, asked him into, right? if governments are working on building super soldiers yeah. like Captain America and he said not to his knowledge but let's be honest that's what he has to say yeah, let's be honest. fuck I have they there, better be shit are there any like maladaptive results yet in terms of like. CRISPR, yeah, yeah, like they go in, going wrong, yeah, or or maybe not going wrong. They actually they actually go right, and in going right, that somehow the the complexity of the particular genomic structure, I, I don't know, it it didn't work as well with a child with blue eyes as it would have if you just left it up to chance, and that by removing certain bits or tweaking with certain things, that somehow that led to problems down the road. Well, it's so early that they don't know how far down the road it will be before it can potentially cause problems. So, I mean, they weren't doing this in embryonic cells 20 or 30 years ago, so there are no adults to look at yet. But again, my understanding of the complexity is there are certain DNA helixes, there are certain condi conditions where they've identified, okay, this is the exact sequence, this is where this happens, we can cut this out and then fix it. There are other ones that exist in lots and lots of different DNA. I think he mentioned Parkinson's might have been one of the more complicated ones. So you would have to cut and edit a ton of different DNA sequences. And those, they haven't really been able to successfully identify yet. It's just the ones that happen to have a simplistic genetic pattern that they're able to cut and paste and correct in that way. Mm. So not that many complications because of the current application. And, and, and when you're saying uh, problems in the future, are you saying like the implications of of doing this, or are you saying like 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 it could you know ten you, you, you're born healthy and then ten years down the road you have some physical abnormality happen because yeah, of this process? I mean, you never know with this stuff. That's why the FDA takes decades to approve anything. Um, there's there's always that chance, but based on what they're doing specifically it doesn't seem likely that it would cause any substantial problems down the line interesting so i think maybe this is a bit obvious but i think we should just mention it since it's pretty essential to understanding the movie is uh you know we're talking a lot about determination and will and how that ultimately allows ethan hawk's character to succeed so i think that obviously the crystallization of this is the game of chicken at in the ocean at the end of the movie illustrates that Vincent's will to persevere in the face of danger can elevate him above his determined lot and then um interestingly we see 
Jude Law's character kind of also achieving this when he rids himself of his wheelchair and tries to carry himself up the stairs, especially it's kind of a visual metaphor for what Ethan Hawke's character that is seems doing. Awesome. Uh, building himself up despite his disability, and you can equate disability with being a faith uh, faith birth here. Uh, interestingly, earlier in the movie, he claims that he can't climb the stairs. Um, and so my next question is, we touched on this a little bit earlier. We talked about how uh, the other quote at the beginning is a biblical quote uh, from Ecclesiastes saying, consider God's handiwork who can straighten what he hath made crooked. And there's the line at the beginning when he's cleaning his keyboard and uh, the director comes up to him and says, you keep your workspace very clean. And Ethan Hawke says it's next to godliness. And hmm. the guy says, yes, godliness. And so I'm curious is what do you guys do you guys think that how do you think that faith plays into this movie? And faith, faith in what? Faith in I not necessarily faith in God, although I think that that is something that we can talk about. But so, for example, I think that like taking a leap of faith. So when, for example, when he I, I think there's a leap of faith element to when he's crossing the street, despite not being able to see that kind of he has to do something very irrational to take that leap of faith in order to pursue his dreams, which is something that someone who is genetically enhanced would never do. I mean, we see this in Jude Law's character. He's so disappointed in himself in for winning the silver medal instead of the gold because, you know, it was his uh, determined lot in life to be the best because he has, you know, thoroughbred genes, purebred genes. And I think that perhaps there's an element of when you don't have that sense of certainty that you are going to be the best, then you have to rely on faith and in doing so, faith can actually ennoble you in a way that your genes cannot. Well, and so you're talking about faith in yourself then kind of? Faith in... Like just in the fact that you can do something you don't think you could right, probably... Right, faith in something beyond rationality. So we would say that the rational thing would just say like, okay, these are my genes, this is what I'm possible. It's perhaps irrational to think that I can do anything or I can elevate myself above what my genes say I can do, but I just have irrational faith that I can do so. And I think that earlier we're talking about the division between human and humanity, and I think that's something essential to humanity is that faith allows us to potentially elevate ourselves beyond any kind of determinism. I guess I would, more just in the terminology than I just personally wouldn't call that faith. I'd call it, you know, determination, determination, force of will, you know. Like. Well, I'm curious what Austin and Cody think, because, you know, we do say faith birth. Uh, and then at the, at the beginning, he says, I never I never quite understood why my mother put her faith in the Lord rather than her local geneticist. So there is some I think faith is deliberately in there and maybe not an explicitly religious context, but a bit. I took it as more just like rolling the dice, you know. <laughs> no, well that that is that is that is it. But I I guess I'm curious. Do you think there's any kind of religious, semi-religious affirmation in this movie, Austin? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an implicit theology, right? And and I think that the film is always trying to sort of transcend that. I mean, they they again the quote at the beginning they use an Ecclesiastes quote on purpose. And the terminology, it's a faith birth. Uh, they do talk about God a lot, and it kind of it struck me a little bit that um, that it was almost like throwaway lines, because I think what we're meant to to maybe take out of that is is that this culture or this this future world implicitly has this this theological ideology that grounds um, one one way of viewing the world, and then that there's like this scientific way that has then moved beyond that, so to speak, right, and that. That the faith births, they're sort of, they're sort of archaic in a way, right? Right. Because because it produces an invalid or what do they call it, genoism, and they have all these other various right. discriminatory terms that are used for the products, if you will, of faith based procreation, and so it sort of is a denigration of that in, in the film, right? So the the the, the society denigrates theology and and advocates like a pure biologistic determinism. And so then the film is obviously trying to complicate that, to talk about how 
there's almost a sort of um, redemption for the faith and for the theological in this film. But I don't know that it's like explicitly organized religion that has a redemption at the end, but rather maybe, and Ryan would like this, but it's the human spirit. It's faith in the potential of the yeah. human. And, and to use a callback to <laughs> one of our videos um, that I that I helped uh, construct uh, on Christopher Nolan, um, in the film The Prestige, Hugh Jackman's character talks about this a lot. He uses it multiple times, and I think, and I can't remember what it is, but it's man's reach exceeds his grasp, I think he says, or something along those lines. Man's imagination exceeds his grasp. It's something like that. Do you remember, Jared? Uh, I don't remember the exact line. But it's something It's something like that. It's like the imagination exceeds the grasp of what human can do. And I think that's kind of then what is ultimately being vindicated or or redeemed at the end, rather than like a an organized religious theological view and definitely not um, like a scientific naturalistic reductionist view. Just for a quick plug, by the way, Austin, part three, the completion of Austin's Christopher Nolan trilogy is coming out on Saturday. Woo-hoo. Yeah. And I think and actually, interestingly enough, that that uh, installment deals with very similar topics in a sense where it's like the relationship between the imagination and science and can human imagination, the human spirit, does it transcend? Can it transcend sort of biological limitations or um, yes. societal limitations that are derived from supposed biological limitations. And so I think the similar themes. Love is the only thing that can transcend time and space. According, yeah. according and to Ryan, Ryan, Ryan is editing it right now. So, <laughs> um, so I think perhaps this is a bit um, overlap. But I want to talk about dreams, and I think that, you know, perhaps there's some overlap here, faith, imagination, dreams. But one thing I asked myself while watching this movie that I thought was kind of interesting, can a genetically determined person, or rather a society in which one's capabilities are predetermined, can they even have dreams? Or are dreams superfluous for one who is at least told or is indoctrinated in thinking that they know the exact parameters of their capabilities? Mm. That's a great question. You mean can, can can they have them in their own mind or can they act on them? No, it's not like, you know, when they fall asleep, are they dreaming? But like, you know, if I said like, oh, man, my dream one day is to, you know, make a movie starring James Franco or something like okay. that, you know. But like when I'm born, if a doctor tells me that like, yeah, you don't have the whatever the capacity to make a movie or something like that then what i I would just accept like okay well that's out of the card so there's no point in dreaming whereas ethan hawk's character rejects that Mm. in that you know his his parents even tell him the only way you're ever getting into gattaca or being working at a space station is if you're cleaning it but he rejects that and says no i'm gonna dream and then ultimately he does achieve it well well well, that's what to me is kind of the disconnect between the the universe they've built in the movie where this is already happening and has been happening and then how I feel like it would actually play out in real life you know because if in real life if if everyone's if you're being born it's like and the doctor at the beginning tells you hey you, you know you have a really good chance of being in the NBA you know like like you're gonna be tall and stuff and you that's that's your lot in life you're gonna be in the NBA and it's like no one's just gonna accept that like oh well should I have to do that you know no one does that right now it's like 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 even if your parents want you to have ambitions for you to own the family business and then you figure out you want other plans, no one says, well, shit, that's not that wasn't your plan in life from the beginning. Right. But I think that it's a it's I, an, I think it's that a blank this gene, slate. This gene editing thing has become so ubiquitous. It really has shaped the culture into the point where perhaps, you know, we're talking about dreams right now. But you could also argue that people in this community or I'm sorry, in this society probably don't even have desires outside of what they're told that they can achieve. See, I, I feel like in real in practice it wouldn't happen like that. I do think that like what I think Cody or Austin was saying earlier about, you know, the the fact that all the rich people are going to be more perfect, yeah. that's going to be a very real problem that we're going to have to deal with. But in terms of I don't think that everyone all the people that are quote unquote invalid or uh, in the future are going to go, "Well, shit, I just shouldn't dream about well, anything." Both, I think they're going to both gonna, invalids and valids. Well, right. I I don't think that that's going to be the case. I mean, I, obviously you're going to have advantages or disadvantages uh, the way you're born, but you know, people, are st- the human spirit will still live on, man. All right. Well, as you're as gonna... the friendly neighborhood communist, I'm going to say, yeah, poor people aren't allowed to have dreams, and um, there's some really fascinating studies that have recently come out that talk about the impact of stress and poverty on the development of uh, early childhood brains. And uh, it has to do with cortisol and uh, epinephrine levels being 
produced in the brain that actually limit the production of serotonin that actually stifle uh, linguistic development, which affects obviously conscious development, which affects reasoning and rationality. Um, and if you're constantly striving to just try to put fucking food on your table, then you can't dream about going to space. So I will say, uh, <laughs> if I'm going to represent the radical leftist position, which I am sometimes want to do, then I would say, yes, uh, you cannot, or I'm sorry, no, you cannot have dreams if you are radically impoverished. And so if, to Cody's point, this sort of future did create this radical bifurcation of inequality, um, not just in terms of wealth inequality, which actually wealth inequality does, and this is this is scientifically measurable. It does affect uh, the ability to which one is able to dream or strive or create future outputs. Um, but beyond that, if we started doing that at a biological level um, as well, that that would only deepen this divide. So that's my two cents. But I, you know, I, I don't need to beat that dead horse too much. So Cody, right. what do you think? <laughs> you you heard it here first. Poor people can't dream. Austin uh, on the podcast. <laughs> no, they should. Austin, they I, should I'm be excited able to. for the for the emails. We're going to get on that one. No, no, I, problematic I mean, I, communist. <laughs> no, but I mean, I hope it's understood that I'm not saying that that's the way it ought to be. But the point is, is that the, the system. Oh no, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> just so just so we're clear. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it was was Ryan maybe said a minute ago that that it's unrealistic because kids may be told by their parents you're going to do this or you're going to do that, but then they decide not to do that. But what about other cultures that aren't the U.S.? Doesn't this kind of thing happen in China pretty regularly? Oh yeah, in China they have something called the Gao Cow, which is basically the uh high their the China equivalent of the SAT, and it's. Basically, a test that determines what jobs you can pursue. Jesus. Um, so, like, if you uh, if you test a certain uh, grade on the Gaokao, uh, you can be a lawyer. But if you get lesser things, then you know you have to work in the service industry or something like that. Like, it's yeah. I mean, they, they do think like how, even, how many times can you even take not that even test? on a genetic level. That's a good question. I don't know. It might be just once, though. God damn. Yeah. And think about projecting America into the future and comparing it with China. I mean, our country is hyper focused on efficiency and productivity just like this culture in Gattaca right I mean it's hyper policed it's a total police state and all they seem to care about is who can do the job the best it doesn't matter how much you want to do it or what your passion is it's just if you've got this genetic predisposition so I I could see this happening I mean in a way and I, I could see even the parental expectations and their overdetermination to shoehorn their kids into a particular field or a particular area of expertise. I, I don't think that that is that far-fetched. Well, in a way, with our focus on STEM in education and the cutting of funding for the arts, we actually are basically, to use a sort of Foucauldian term that we've talked about on this podcast before, we are basically disciplining bodies in a particular way. We are creating or constructing or constituting human bodies in a particular way that cut off other potential elements of what it could mean to be human and we are just simply building up the sort of more restricted areas of what it means to be human insofar as those elements are more conducive to the expansion of capital and the expansion of the market and the expansion, as Cody just said, of productivity and efficiency. So we want engineers and scientists and we want mathematicians and things like that because those things help to increase the speed and efficiency and rate of the market, whereas you know, being a an artist who sits in his room like tie-dyeing shells or something like that isn't something that's as valuable or exchangeable on the market. So there is something that, that could be really – that could present some problems in the future if we continue to just advance a technocratic view of the world. I mean I think that that's less, less people not – wanting to be or a society discounting the arts and more just a practical thing you know and like like for thousands of years there wasn't government funded arts you know and people were still making music and art and stuff and it didn't slow well, that's not imagination true i mean down. like classical music was essentially started as well, i know there's a, patrons a the there's patrons yeah. and stuff like that but it, i mean there was still like you know poorer people making stuff you know i i don't think that one might even argue that music was better when it was just a, when it was just a entertainment for the elite <laughs> <laughs> well that's come on jared <laughs> what what ed sheeran man like his last album in the uk and ireland it may be commercially reproduced pop bubblegum stuff but every single hit was in the top 10 over in ireland in the uk come on man 
Yeah. I mean, you know, Mozart. Can Beethoven say that? Fuck no. <laughs> Mozart right? wrote most of his stuff for the, the, whatever, the King of Habsburg or something like that, you know? <laughs> he wasn't making hot knife videos. The king didn't want that. He was too, he was too, uh, he had too much dignity for that. Yeah. Um, any, anyway, I want to transition the conversation to love and what this movie has to say about love. So um, we don't see a lot of romance in this film other than Irene and Vincent. And there, there are two scenes I want to point to that I think are pretty interesting. So one, when Irene and Vincent start flirting for the first time, Irene takes her hairs and warns him that she has heart problems and she like offers the piece of hair for him to evaluate if she's worthy of dating. Um, <laughs> and then later, Irene like takes one of his hairs out of his comb and brings it to like this... Uh, this storefront where there's another woman who like just kissed a guy and they're like swabbing her lips to just see what his genetic code is like. So in our recent video on Boss Baby, we talked about Lacan and how he talked about how love is how we reflect one's lack back onto each other. And I'm wondering if we can say that in this society where people are optimized to the point where they at least think or are meant to believe that they don't have vulnerabilities, can they experience love without that kind of that vulnerability? Because ultimately what brings Irene and Vincent together is the fact that they both have a heart condition. They both have this invalid quality to them. So basically my question is in a society of valids, can there really be true empathetic love? Yes. Okay, go on. <laughs> oh, that, does anyone else have an answer first? Uh, no. <laughs> Your answer is no. No, no. <laughs> or you don't have an answer. What do you, What do you think, Ryan or Cody? What do you? I mean, what I mean, what I think this? is that that human being, if you if you're conscious, you are. You can't. I, I don't feel like you can crisper out insecurity. Right. Like everyone, no matter, even if you're the most valid person ever, you know, if you're born supposed to be the best, you're still, you know, you're in your mind. You're like, well, shit, I was born this way. This is the only way I've ever been. How, how do I know I'm the best? You know, you're always so. And that's kind of what to me, that's what being a human. or That's a big part of it. That's not just so in that you, you know, you, you, you find other people, you relate to them. And yeah, you then you're a human, so you can right. feel the capacity I mean, to you're love. You're saying you find other people and you relate to them. My question is, is the most powerful form of relation one in which we see the uh, vulnerabilities or the insecurities in another person? And yeah, I mean, to your point, if we're going to say that, yeah, no matter how optimized or how valid you are, you're going to have insecurities, I mean, fine, I accept that. But if we're just taking the conceit of this movie to its logical conclusion, and if people truly are perfected, will that dilute or nullify the power of love, or at least, you know, the, the I guess I'm saying no. is love stronger. So we're not meant to believe that the whole thing of them having, them both having a heart condition is not something essential that brings them together. Well, I think it, it, it's, it's, it's more like, like, oh, do you want to be with me since you, I might die early in life? That like, like, that's a human question, you know, it's kind of like if, if, if you had, in today, would you want, you know, if, if like, like, it's like you letting someone know, hey, just so you know, I'm, you know, I'm susceptible to having cancer and dying, you know, when I'm 45, you know, just, do you want to commit the rest of your life with me? Uh, uh, Wait, I don't get it. Like, people would say, oh, yeah, that sounds great. I don't get it. No, they wouldn't. I'm just saying that it's something that you'd be conscious of and you're telling, it, but, but it's not like, but then, but then your lover, quote unquote, or uh, would be like, well, shit, I love you and I love spending time with you. And yeah, let's spend the time that we have. It's human connection is not just, oh, well, you're not as perfect as me, so I, I don't want to be with you. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we reflect our imperfections onto each other and, uh, you know, like not necessarily that we fill the void missing in each other people, but I don't know. I, I'm just saying that vulnerability can turn into like pillars of compassion for mm. for lovers. Mm. So yeah. if they're so if you're if they're too perfect, then there's nothing to really grasp on. Right, then, because then people start dating or loving each other for very practical, very pragmatic reasons. So like this is when you can say like if we were to take a a less literal modern day example, like if we have the two richest people in the world and they get married for pragmatic reasons, because or like you know in the olden times when you know the the prince of or, or yeah like Marie Antoinette, the princess of France, marries. Or I'm sorry. Antoinette was uh, the daughter of an Austrian monarch, and she marries uh, the French prince. That's like a pragmatic thing. It's not, and I'm saying that we would, in a society where everyone is 
genetically optimized and perfect, but they would probably have more pragmatic unions like that. Well, I think they, I mean, they're, they're optimized physically perfect, not emotionally perfect necessarily, right? I mean, it's kind of like, like it's just all to do with their bodies. It has nothing to do with their personality. You know, well, sm- I mean, it depends on if you think that your personality is determined by brain chemicals and stuff like that. I mean, we are meant to believe. I, I mean, I think that the movie is m- making us believe that both physical, mental, everything is optimized. Well, right, and that's where I disagree with the movie is that I feel like, yeah, I can get the physical thing that makes sense, but the th- the emotional part, the, you know, the the personality, imagination, that's where you you know, it's chaos. You don't know who's going to be what. It seems like uh, uh, it, it didn't. Until someone tells me, like, oh, hey, I'm going to make your kid super funny, you know, super smart, have the best imagination, and they're going to be able to love, you know, everybody. Like, if that happens, then I can say, okay, yeah, like, that's going to be weird, you know, uh, because then you don't even know, like, if I'm having an emotion, is that me? Is that my genetics, whatever. Whereas, you know, right now it feels relatively like I have control. I'm not saying I do, but it feels like I do. So that works for me. I don't know. I think that I I interviewed actually a professor at Northwestern University who's done tons of research on dating and marriage and relationships. And he wrote a book about marriage and current marriage. And what he said was that currently we're living in the way that marriage is structured today is a blip in human history. Never before, really, even the, the 40s or 50s, did people get married for love. It wasn't a romantic thing. It was very functional. So yeah. I think that this film is kind of a return to form. And they even alluded to that at the beginning of the movie, where it turns out that the main character was conceived in the back of a station wagon, right? Which is a yeah. very 1950s kind of idea. <laughs> so to me, marriage is a return to form of what it originally was. It was human beings coexisting to help Trying each other survive, survive yeah. and not die. And back in the day, it wasn't what woman is super hot, which one can till the soil the best, you know? Um, and that's what Gattaca's doing. I think the relationships in this are going to be a little bit more. In terms of the emotional feeling and connection, I think that's very questionable. And I think that becomes very secondary to the function of marriage and i think that it becomes reduced to again in line with this the rest of the society hyper focused on efficiency and productivity and it's about the practical benefits and not so much the romance absolutely all right so one last question before we sign off why do you guys think jerome killed himself yeah i wondered that i also have another question related to this do we think that vincent is resigning himself to just kind of anything and that he's getting in this spaceship and he because he, he already says like he's 10,000 beats heartbeats overdue the point when he's supposed to die and he's got a one percent chance are we supposed to be left in that ambiguity that man maybe he will come back and he has that supply of that lifetime supply of blood and and urine and everything like that where he can continue to live as jerome if and when he comes back and he's obviously got Uma Thurman that he can come back to, are we meant to be left with a sense of hopelessness or are we meant to believe that they're both killing themselves and they're both kind of just resigning themselves to to the fate of whatever happens? Or is it that Jerome sacrifices himself so that there will be no more future elements so that Vincent can come back and just simply be Jerome? Yeah, I kind of just think that he realized his dream before his supposedly short lifespan. And so if he dies, you know, five seconds after he touches back down on Earth, everything's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, realistically, how long could he really, even with all of Jerome's blood and skin cells and all that stuff, like how long could he really keep this up? His whole life. I mean, he could just go back to being an invalid because his girl that obviously you're you're meant to think that if he do goes back, they're probably going to get together because they both say, you know, a year's not that long. It's just one rotation or one revolution around um, one what rotation revolution, one revolution around the sun. And um, and so maybe you're meant to think that he'll just go back and he doesn't even need to be Jerome, really. Like, fuck it. He got to do what he wanted to do. He could go back and just be Vincent. So, yeah, but he's going to he's a huge pay cut. (laughs) <laughs> Who wants to go back to being a janitor? <laughs> I yeah. I have another question, Jared. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't make any meta points about how Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke hooked up after this and got married. Oh, I actually did not know that. Oh, okay. Uh-oh. Well. Ding. <laughs> Ding. <laughs> well, that was Ryan. That wasn't even me. <laughs> making his meta points for him. All right, Cody, any thoughts on why Jerome killed himself before we wrap it up? Yeah, I think he was just so indoctrinated into this society that, again, is 
hyper-focused on efficiency and productivity, and that seems to be all that determines a person's value at all in this society. Mm. I mean, he was a pretty successful guy before he became crippled and probably could have had lots of friends in his social circle, but all he does is sit around and mope. And you even see in the workplace in Gattaca, very rarely does anybody make eye contact with anybody else. It's almost like interpersonal relations are the the lowest of, of the, the absolute lowest importance in this entire society. So once you've lost your utility to the society, then what good are you and what good is your life? And I guess I just think he's just been so indoctrinated, which is kind of funny because Vincent does the opposite, right? He goes to space and could potentially jeopardize this entire really rare mission because he could just drop dead 20 minutes after they take off. Hmm. So I think that, yeah, that's, that's, that's why I think he does it. And I think he chooses the incinerator, of course, so he doesn't leave a trace. And it's pretty obvious. Yeah. And, and maybe something else to consider, too, is that he actually was always fucking miserable. Remember, he carries around that reminder that he was never good enough, the silver medal, right? Because if the standard, and Jared talked about this, I think, at the beginning, if the standard is perfection, you're always going to fall short of that. If the standard is to be the best and you're not the best, then you're always going to be chasing that sort of that grand image and it's always going to haunt you, you know, like a god. It's always going to haunt you. The standard of perfection will always be judging you. And so he was always miserable. Even when he was quote unquote successful before he became paralyzed, he still was second best. He was never good enough. So I think that now that he is um, literally invalid in, in the sort of like just technical sense of the term, then now he kind of I – don't, I don't even think, think that he can – even continue on so i think that's why he kind of just is he's done he's like i have served my purpose so to speak it's sad that there's not a redemption for him well i think it's more like it, it's kind of yeah it is a little hopeless message that that it, like y'all have basically been saying it's about a commentary on the high expectations you'll you'll probably have if if you're if you're supposedly born perfect and then it's kind of like like uh uh you know it's like today with i guess you know the 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 kid who's born rich and and should have everything he wants in the or should have everything in the world uh, uh, that he needs, but but ends up crashing and burning. You know, getting addicted to coke and stuff. It's kind of like uh, uh, and then and then the poor person who who pulls him up pulls himself up by the bootstraps, quote unquote, to uh, uh, you know get his dreams done. I yeah. had a hard time determining whether this was more of a pull. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, no matter what kind of film, or if the overarching message was more society makes it so hard. It's really not possible, but we'll show you somebody doing it anyway. Yeah. I wonder, <laughs> I'm glad you actually I mentioned that. I know we're one. kind of running short on time, but if I can real quick, and this might be interesting for, for listeners too, is um, in disability studies, there are a couple of ways that, that disability is generally, like categorized and one is called like the medical model of disability which would fit I think more with the, the the general society in Gattaca where it's based on kind of your your quote-unquote natural human essence right and it's generally biological so the normal human is the human that can walk upright and that can lift a certain amount of weight and that will live to be an age that is quote-unquote normal right so then the social model of disability comes along and says no 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 we don't like this this language of normality um, we think that that's really problematic and um, they say that actually we want to view disability in terms of what society has allowed to be determined as normal. So what the social model would argue then is that in order to make someone able-bodied, what society needs to do is create wheelchair ramps because then someone who is in a wheelchair um, is able to get into a building just like everybody else. So it's society's responsibility to sort of make up for, if you will, the differences. And so there's differently abled is the term that they would like to use rather than disabled. But then there's a more radical term, and I'm just going to go real quick here, that's offered by somebody um, by the name, I think it's Thomas Shakespeare, and he has dwarfism. And if you're out there uh, and you know this better than I do, I can't remember the technical term for that, but um, he uh, is someone who says that actually let's scrap all of this. The social model doesn't even go far enough. And he says rather, rather than let's think of it like this. Everybody is disabled. Technically, everybody in this entire world is disabled because ability is something that is only understood in terms of a relation, in terms of a goal or a purpose or a standard that is imposed from without. So I can't jump onto a roof. So I am disabled in relation to not being able to jump on the roof. So what do I do? I build a ladder and that 
enables me to be able to do that. So he wants to sort of radicalize this idea and say everybody's disabled. And this film sort of kind of I think is dealing with these different ideas of what does it mean to be able-bodied or what does it mean to be an authentic normal human. And maybe the idea at the end is that actually we're all disabled but it's just what are we able to do? How is our society able to kind of structure itself to allow us or to enable us to function or to embrace us or to include us? And then um, and then also to recognize that even if you are quote unquote uh, a valid in this film or an able-bodied person, that even you have limitations. You're disabled in terms of other standards. So Jerome, this 93 percenter, he's even disabled in terms of he's not the super best and he's an alcoholic and he's got these other issues. So there needs to be a sort of ubiquity, if you will, of disability so that we can then try to transcend any sort of hierarchization or, or sort of like trying to normalize the um, certain dominant or majority uh, habitual patterns of what it means to be human and then rather kind of flatten things out and, and even things out a little bit. So I, I think that's kind of in there as well. Yeah, we all deserve better parking. <laughs> all right, la last question. I want to just uh, real quick. If you were in Vincent's parents' position, would you op would you genetically optimize your child? Yes or no, Ryan? Uh, yes. <laughs> all right, Austin. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to have to take a pass on this. I'd have to meditate what? deeply at a monastery in France for a couple of months before I can make such a determination. You're not even going to answer. You get two minutes to, uh, to answer right now. That's too long. All right. Skip, <laughs> skipping Austin. Cody. In this world of Gattaca, I would have to say yes, because the option is just atrocious. Yeah. What about I'm, you, Jared? I'm with Cody. I'm with Cody. I mean, you, you just got to do it. It's a shitty, I mean, if you live in this society and there's nothing you can do to change it and that's the reality and if you have the money to do it, then you got to fucking do it. <laughs> Either that or you're just kind of dooming your kid to a perhaps worse life. Maybe. But then again, look at, uh, look at Jerome. His life sucks. He fucking killed himself. So who, what the fuck do I know? <laughs> anyway, that's going to wrap it up for today. So actually, we are not doing the mailbag in this because we got so many great emails from our Get Out episode. We're actually going to be uploading a separate file on our RSS feed. That's going to be a full episode on the mailbag to talk about Get Out. And lastly, I want to thank Cody Goff uh, for joining us. I highly recommend you guys check out his podcast at curiosity.com. If you enjoyed this conversation about Gattaca, I highly recommend his uh, episode 17 of his podcast on gene editing. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me, guys. I am actually a fan of this podcast, by the way. I'm not just jumping on here for, for shameless self-promotion, although <laughs> thank I have you. to do that, too. But no, I love this podcast. And actually, if people want to hear more of you guys, we're going to do kind of a meta episode on the Curiosity Podcast. I'll be talking to some of your crew about the value of, of movie analysis and looking at the philosophy of pop culture and things like that. I don't know exactly where we'll go with the conversation, but I think it's going to be really interesting because you're, you're pretty interesting people. Oh, thank you. We're looking forward to it. And uh, also, if you like this movie, uh, uh, the director made another movie right after this called Simone that also has to do with uh, pretty much the future in five minutes right now. It's about basically CGI and a CGI actress that becomes really famous. Um, oh, with, uh, with uh, Al Pacino. With, yeah. Yeah. It's really awesome. All right, guys. Well, that does it for today. Be sure to check out our mailbag episode on Get Out. Peace, guys. Peace out, film fans from Hollywood, California. Later. Later. <laughs>